0: know someone that you think could never be converted? They're just so worldly, so wicked. There's just no way they could ever be in God's church. On the other hand, do you know someone that is just so dedicated to their religion, their faith, their church, so devout that, again, you can't imagine them ever changing and coming into God's church? Today in this sermon, we're going to look at lessons from the conversion of just such a person. His name is Saul, and when you hear me say Saul, you might be thinking of Israel's first legitimate king, but this is not the Saul of which I speak. The title of today's sermon is From a Wolf to a Sheep, From a Wolf to a Sheep. And to set the stage, we need to build a little bit of a background as to what is happening in this story. And we're going to go to the New Testament in this case. So let's go to the book of Acts in chapter 6. Now, you'll want to put a marker in the book of Acts. This will be our home base but we will be taking side excursions to build this story together. And this has to do with someone named Stephanos. Greek name, Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and the Cyrenians, and the Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. These were... Hellenist Jews who had their own synagogues in Jerusalem. And they go after Stephen in particular. Verse 10, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And boy, that galls people and they cannot give you a good retort. And so they instead decide to persecute you. And then they suborned or bribed. Men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And if you want to arouse anger against someone, accuse them of such a thing. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council, the Sanhedrin. And set up false witnesses which said, this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Now they had taken something that Jesus had said about destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. But he wasn't talking about a building in the city. He was talking about his body. But the enemies used that to accuse men like Stephen of threatening to destroy the temple and to teach against God's law through Moses. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest gave him the right to defend himself. Are these things so? And through the next part of this chapter, Stephen gives this magnificent speech recounting the history of Israel. In Moses, and Solomon. And let's work our way now down to chapter 7 of Acts in verse 51. And at the end of that speech, lecture, sermon, detecting their response, he says to them, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, you stubborn and impenitent of heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And Jesus spoke of this as well. Going back for centuries, they had persecuted God's servants. And they have slain them which showed or prophesied before of the coming of the just one. And that was a term that the Jews used in Jewish literature for the expected Messiah, of whom you have now been the betrayers and the murderers. And Stephen laid it on the line, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And in effect, Stephen is judging them. They have put him on trial. He judges them for their cold-heartedness, and threatening of murder. He had no visible results but fury, rage, hatred, resentment. But he puts one proud Pharisee under conviction. And that one will write one-third of our New Testament. And that's the rest of our story. We had to have this for the background. And so now in verse 54... The first Christian martyr is this man, Stephen. And so we read in verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They were furious. They were touched in the raw. They were enraged. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. Remember how Jesus talked about weeping and gnashing of teeth in the Gospels? they gnashed on him with violent rage, ground their teeth at him. This literal manifestation of wrath and rage against him. Now Stephen probably had more to say, but they interrupted him. What he had said so far should have brought them to repentance. But instead, let's see what happens. 55, and he being full of the Holy Spirit, Like in chapters 2 and 6, the early disciples and apostles looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And this glory of God is what the Jews centuries before called the Shekinah glory. And Ezekiel had prophesied that that Shekinah would depart from the Holy of Holies. And you read through the books of Ezekiel how that Glory of God moved further, ever further away from the Holy of Holies to the Mount of Olives and then rose back to heaven. And yet now, all these years later, Stephen is given a brief glimpse of this glory of God. And he sees Jesus as well, standing at the right hand of God. There are three manifestations of Jesus in our New Testament. After the Gospels, here, then to Paul in chapter 9, and finally to John the Apostle in the book of Revelation. And notice that Jesus is standing. Normally, he's spoken of as being seated, like in chapters 2 and in Hebrews 8. And he stands as if he were a defense attorney. And Stephen sees him, and that, no doubt, gave him great courage to press on. Perhaps Jesus is standing to remind Stephen that he's the high priest. But it's notable that he's standing at this point. And in verse 56, they said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Perhaps he had this scene that took him right to the third heaven. And he sees the Son of Man. This is the only time in our New Testament outside the Gospels where that phrase is used, Son of Man. And he sees him standing on the right hand of God. And that was the place of honor, anciently, always the right hand. Kings would carry their royal implements in their right hand. And that's how Jesus is depicted since his resurrection. At the right hand of God, that goes right back to the book of Psalms even. No doubt this greatly encouraged Stephen to press on even though the anger and the rage against him was only mounting. And then they cried out in verse 57 with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. You know when you're a kid and you don't want to hear something, one of the tactics people employ is to stop their ears with their hands and then hum or say something. And in effect, that's what they're doing here. They're in a rage. We will not listen to this anymore. And they ran upon him with one accord, a concerted rush to grab him. 58. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. This is the Saul of our story today. They cast him out of the city because Jewish executions had to be done outside Jerusalem based on a verse in Leviticus. Cast him out of the city and they stoned him. In effect, this was what we would call today a lynching. This was the penalty for blasphemy and they accused him of that in a way It was done at that time if there was a stoning is that the first one to accuse such a person would push this man into a 12-foot hole. He may die on the way down, but if he's not dead, then the rest of them would throw these stones to kill him. and witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet. Now, no doubt these are false witnesses. And the witnesses suggest that there was some kind of motion of illegal execution here, though probably without securing the official approval of Pilate, because in that case, capital offenses that were led to execution had to receive Roman approval. And either Pilate did not want to interfere, or they didn't seek it, But it makes you wonder, is Pilate still reeling from his experience with Jesus and does not want to get involved any further? And it's just a hands-off. And he leaves the Jews to it. And those who were pushing and shoving and throwing stones at Stephen laid their clothes at a young man's feet. And that scene... Reminds us of some of the things that we're seeing on TV even now. And so the young man, the word young was used for someone 20 to 40 years old. And his name is Saul. Possibly he had been given that name by his parents. In memory of the first legitimate king of Israel. It was a popular name. Who is this man Saul? And so they stoned Stephen, verse 59, and he was calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to her charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He invokes Christ in heaven. The prayer is directed right to him. John will do the same thing at the end of the book of Revelation. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. A direct prayer right to Jesus Christ himself. But you notice that, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Does that sound familiar? Reminds you what Jesus prayed just before his death as well. But Stephen has these two reversed. He kneeled down and cried with this loud voice, Receive my spirit. And Lord, lay not this sin to the church. He is praying for his enemies, for those who despitefully used him and persecuted him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. The man whose name means crown has just won the crown of life for the coming resurrection. Now that is necessary to understand what happens next in chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And here we have a persecution being mounted against the church that in effect is like a new diaspora in that there's going to be a dispersing of God's people in all directions. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution. Now, Saul was consenting to his death. Some take that to mean that he was a member of the Sanhedrin and that he was um, promoted to the trust of handling this trial. He was the supervisor for it. It's not certain that he actually was a member of the Sanhedrin, but some take it that way. He gave hearty counsel and approved of this event. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostle. This shows, again, how hard it was for a Jew of the first century to accept a version of the Messiah that they were not expecting. Because Jesus did not match the images they had been taught by their rabbis for centuries of the coming Messiah. And now it's not only against him, but against his followers that their action is taken. And so at that day, there was a great persecution, an extent and severity against the church, which is at Jerusalem, implying that the church was beginning to grow outside the city of Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem church now gets the brunt of this venom. And they were all scattered, a word dispersed, like diaspora, abroad throughout the regions or districts of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what's happening here is that this action forces the church to kick into stage 2 of their assigned mission to take the gospel to the world. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power, after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus tells his disciples, And you shall be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, like waves of a stone cast into a pond, and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And he puts us in a three-stage growth of the work and of the church. And now we're moving into that stage and the church is being forced to leave town, to leave Jerusalem, the headquarters church, because of this persecution that's mounted against it. And they're being scattered, they're being dispersed. The second stage of church expansion throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now possibly the persecution was limited to the Hellenist Christians like Stephen, uh, in part because the Hebrew Christians' attitude towards the temple was somewhat different than Jews in other parts of the world. In this phase, it's going to prepare us for what's to come in verse 14. And from this time until A.D. 135, the church at Jerusalem, which we'll regather after this, have been composed mainly of Jews. Now, this is a result of what happened with Stephen. Saul consents to his death. And then the persecution seems to mount. Because now it's okay to persecute this handful of messians, these believers that we don't understand. They're believing in a Messiah that we can't accept. In verse 2, "...devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation for him." And that shows the great courage of these men. Because ordinarily, people stoned for blasphemy had no funeral honors. They could be thrown in Gehenna and just left. But these men said, No, we will take that risk. We will honor our beloved Stephen. And they made great lamentation over him. And the way it was done traditionally in that day was to beat the head and beat the breast normally not allowed for someone who is stoned to death, but they, that didn't stop them. This was a mark of honor. An honorary or a, a, a burial with distinction, and honor. And then in verse 3, and as for Saul, he made havoc, ravaging, harrying of the church, entering into every house, hailing men and women, committed them to prison. This is our Saul made havoc. And the way that's expressed in the Greek, it describes a wild animal ravaging the body of its victim. The same word is used that way in the Septuagint translation of the book of Psalms. Now I want you to think about this Saul, because this is our Paul. He has two names. He has a Hebrew name, <clears throat> Saul, and he has a Roman name, Hellenist name, Paul. And think about which tribe he will later tell us he comes from. It was Benjamin. And how is Benjamin depicted? By what animal is Benjamin symbolized in the book of Genesis? A wolf. Here is this Benjamite wolf who was making havoc of the church. And he says in his later epistles that he tried to destroy the church. Even unto death he would persecute these people. And he would gather them and torture them to even blaspheme the name of Christ. And he said in his own words, this was a slaughter of the church. Something like that will stay with you the rest of your life. It's an awful memory. And this will haunt Paul the rest of his life. And he speaks of it in his letters. And he didn't just gather up men, but he went to every house where these believers were, and he hauled away, dragging, violently pulling them away, men and women. They were treated equally And these women stood steadfast under persecution. Many of them were prominent in the church, and they held fast. But this is something that will stir Paul's conscience and bother him. That will lead to a remarkable transformation. Verse 4, And therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. They were scattered abroad, the word from which we get our dispersion. Diaspora, preaching or teaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ throughout the Roman world. We see this in verse 5, 12, 25, 35, 40 throughout the rest of this chapter. Preaching, preaching, preaching in the districts in the, uh, of that uh, part of the Roman Empire. It's been long said in Christian history that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And there were people who died at the hands of this persecution that was mounted by this one soul. And so now we move on to the next chapter. Chapter 9 and verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the eternal, went up to the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the persecution starts as a result of the execution of Stephen. And then Saul jumps in the act and he's breathing out murderous threats. The word breathing comes from a Greek word. It's only here in our New Testament. Threatening and murdering. Or as it were, the atmosphere that he breathed. In and out. By which he lives. And he's threatening slaughter. Murderous threats. This man Saul, we know from history, is a notable person who was an intellectual of the first order because he will tell us about his, some basics about his education, where he came from. Some say he he was one of the finest minds of the first century. In fact, the classicist T.R. Glover ranked him next to Plato. He was no mean or average man. Probably a graduate of one of the greatest Greek universities of that day in his home city of Tarsus, modern day Turkey. And so Saul is breathing out these threatenings and the slaughter against the disciples. And he goes to the high priest, perhaps Caiaphas, and he desires of him letters of authority to go to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Letters of authority to Damascus. Now, Damascus is a notable city located in the Roman province of Syria, the nearest important city outside Palestine. It had a large Jewish population about 150 miles away from Jerusalem, four to six day travel, an ancient city, and today, the, the capital, of Syria, with a population of 800,000. But the Christians there were perhaps people that come from Jerusalem, even from this persecution. And so Saul now wants to track them down, bring them back to trial. And the empire granted Jews the right to extradite offenders of the Jewish communities, even outside Palestine. They had that authority from Rome. And Damascus was the oldest of the cities of the Decapolis, the ten cities in that region. It was on the main caravan route from Syria to Mesopotamia. And so their fear is that if this Christian movement spreads there to Damascus, because of that caravan route, this news will spread in all directions around the Roman world. And so Saul asked for letters to go to Damascus, to the synagogues, and if he found any of this way... Men or women, he could bring them bound back to Jerusalem. And there's six times in our book of Acts, the Christian movement, some call it, God's church is called the way. The way. The way of life. One of the earliest names for the church in Greek. Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now the church, the people who follow him are called that as well. The way of life characteristic of the Christian community. And It's interesting that the Essene community at Qumran used that same designation to describe its mode of life, the way. The way of the eternal was a common Old Testament term, which is similar, and it describes this whole way of life from a moral and spiritual uh, viewpoint. So Saul wants to grab all these who are following this way. Men or women, bring them back, shackled in chains, back to Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin had authority to acquit or condemn to death these people. 150 miles, about a six-day journey, marching back in chains. Now these are our spiritual ancestors. And when we compare... You know, the conditions that we enjoy today here, I think we can feel some embarrassment for what these people went through. This is about 35 A.D. now. And as he journeyed, verse 3, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul. Saul, notice it said twice. Why do you persecute me? He sees a light. Is this that Shekinah glory, the glory of God again from heaven? In fact, when Paul describes this later in the book of Acts, he says it it was at noon and it was brighter than the sun, this beaming light from heaven. And naturally he's knocked to the earth. And he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Of course, this is Jesus Christ talking to him. And how is Paul persecuting Jesus Christ? Well, you see, to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. For what is the church? But the body of Christ. Why do you persecute me? this voice asks him. And he said, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? In rabbinic tradition, such a voice from heaven would have been understood to be the voice of God himself. The bright light and repetition of his name, Saul, Saul, suggests to Saul that he is in the presence of deity. There are a number of times in Scripture when God speaks, he calls Him. Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, Saul, Saul. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Now, what is the basis of this phrase, kicking against these goads? In other words, he's saying that Saul is like a rebellious beast that was fighting against the prod of its master. They would have these long poles, these cattle drivers, and on the end a sharp point, and they would prod the animals to get them to go through their gate or corral. These pricks or goads were sharp pointed sticks to make the animals move. And something is pricking Paul. Something is goading him, and he's not responding to it. It's hard for you to fight this off like an animal kicking back at being goaded by its owner. He's under conviction and he's trying to stifle the goading of his conscience by increasing the persecution against God's church. It's interesting that people, when their conscience is bothering them, instead of listening to it and responding to it properly, become even freer, more fierce in committing that same sin. He's going through turmoil, Jesus now is talking to him to reach him inside. Saul, what is going on inside you right now? And he, verse 6, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me to do? Now this verse comes to us from our old Latin Bible. We're glad to have it. It's part of the story. It fills in some gaps here. What do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And that's a test. You have to follow these instructions first. Will you follow these instructions? And the man which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. These men who were with Saul were witnesses to this event. And they could testify that Saul was not experiencing some emotional or traumatic seizure or hallucination or epilepsy or sunstroke or hysteria, (laughs) perhaps all of which have been used against Paul to dismiss this event as being an action of God. Let me read you a quotation from scholar William Neal. He said, quote, Nothing less than a miracle could have revolutionized the life of this eminently sane and balanced rabbi. End of quote. And so the men who were journeying with him stood speechless, and they heard a voice but saw no man. Now, there's a supposed contradiction that in chapter 22 it says they did not hear a voice. And so what's the problem here? Well, there's really no problem There's a slight difference in the Greek words that are used, which could teach us that they heard but didn't understand what the voice was saying or that they only heard Paul's voice. They didn't hear any articulated words. Something like that. But it's not a contradiction there's no problem. It's just a variant on the way of expressing what happened in this experience. And so in verse 8, Saul, which had been knocked to the earth, rises from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. It was a temporary blindness, but it represents what's going on in his mind. He had been blind to the truth, blind as a persecutor, but they led him by the hand, and they brought him to Damascus. That's where he intended to go and he was 3 days without sight neither did eat nor drink he's fasting and this was customary in that era when people went through such an experience like this and we're told in christian history christians often would fast before baptism some kind of a sign often followed a message from heaven as if to confirm the authenticity of the experience. And here he is, he's blind. This confirms what he's already receiving in his mind. And then verse 10. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. Only here do we have this man Ananias mentioned besides chapter 22. And he's going to be a witness of this man Saul's conversion. In fact, he's going to be God's implement in this process. Ananias was a common name at that time. The Greek is derived from the Hebrew Hananiah. Yahweh is gracious or shows grace. A Jewish Christian, an able witness of this man's conversion And we're told in chapter 22, this man was devout according to the law. He had a good report of all the Jews there. And he was a layman. Ananias, the Lord says to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Behold, I'm here. Now, I want you to notice that in verse 10, it's called a vision. But actually, he hears this message. The vision was heard in this case, as was the case in other visions of the Old Testament. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prays. Street called Straight, Straight Street. Very interesting street, a mile-long street, colonnaded. When Damascus was rebuilt during the Hellenistic period, it had the shape of a rectangle with north-south, east-west streets forming right angles at the intersections. And the east-west streets were longer, and Straight Street was the longest of the streets in the city. That street still exists today. Today it's called Darbel Mustakim. It was the city's main thoroughfare then and now. And then it had lines of Corinthian columns, but no more. It went from one end of the city to the other. So Christ tells Ananias, go to that straight street and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus for his praying. Tarsus was an important commercial center and University City, in that part of Turkey. This is Paul's hometown. It's where he grows up, goes to school, before he travels to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. Tarsus was the crossroads of travel in that day, the capital of the Roman province, Cilicia, in the southeast corner, or what the Romans called Asia, we would call Asia Minor. Possibly over half a million population during Roman times. Paul came from no mean city. That's what, the way he expresses it in his epistles, no mean city. He's actually quoting Euripides. But it's a confluence of east and west. Tarsus was in that time rivaling Alexandria and Athens. Athens in his arts and sciences. That's the city from which this man has come, Saul of Tarsus. But now in this house in Damascus, he's praying, which is often associated with visions in Luke and Acts, and both of which were written by Dr. Luke, the physician. And Ananias is told now, verse 12, he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might, Receive his sight. This is the second of three visions that Saul has in verse 4 and then chapter 22 as well. He talks about being in a trance while praying in the temple. So God is working with Saul in a very special way, an unusual way from most people. And he sees in a vision a man named Ananias coming in to lay his hands on him that he might receive his sight. Verse 13. And then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Now he had heard about this man Saul and the trouble that he was arousing against God's people in Jerusalem. And now he's told by Christ, I want you to go and meet him. Now, why was Paul on that road to Damascus? To put shackles on such people and haul them back to Jerusalem. And yet, there's no stubbornness on the part of Ananias. He obeys instantly because he too has had a message. He hears this voice who tells him to go and to meet this man. He doesn't understand fully what's happening, he naturally has normal concerns. But he he obeys. But he does ask the question, Lord, I've heard from many sources how much harm this man is causing to God's people in Jerusalem. And here, verse 14, he has a warrant of arrest, arrest a warrant from the chief priest to bind all that call on or invoke your name. And the Lord said to him, Verse 15, an outstanding verse, one that you should mark in your Bible. Go your way, for he is a chosen vessel to me to bear my name before the Gentiles, one, kings, two, and the children of Israel, three. A threefold personal commission for the apostle Saul, as he will later become. A chosen vessel. This is Saul's commission. And notice that God is working through another disciple because Christ works through human beings in his church. Through Ananias, this is happening. He's Christ's chosen vessel for this entire process. And Saul, like the prophets, was chosen for a special purpose. In fact, he will tell us later in his Gal- Galatian letter that he God had called him from the womb. For this job. Now he will understand that later. But at this point. He's not put all this together. He is a chosen vessel to me. To bear my name. Before the Gentiles. Now that word. Simply means nations. Gentiles. Yes. As we commonly call them. But. To take the gospel. To all nations. Especially those outside of. Jerusalem and Judea, but also he would go before kings. And we find in the story of Saul from here, he will stand before Agrippa and Caesar at Rome, perhaps even Nero himself when he goes to Rome a second time, apparently, before his execution. He appears before kings just like Christ says. And He was God's chosen vessel to the children of Israel. Because Paul always said when he went into a new city, where did he go first? He went to the synagogue, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And so his work did involve them as well, a threefold mission to the nations, to the Gentiles, to kings and the children of Israel. In 16, Christ says, For I will show him... How great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And that word suffering even can imply the sense of death in that language. Paul would die a martyr himself later, shortly after Luke writes this account, apparently. And perhaps no Christian has suffered to the extent that Saul did to serve the one originally he had persecuted. Paul suffered many times over what he had caused others to suffer, some would say, and yet it was for the same name. Suffering for the king was a sure sign of his favor and an earnest of his coming reward. However, because Paul died in faith, I've run my course, I have finished my race, there's laid up for me a crown which the righteous judge shall give me in that day, Saul will write just before his beheading. And so in verse 17, Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, notice what he calls him, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared to you in the way as you came, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He puts his hands on him to identify Saul, this persecutor, this ravenous Benjamite wolf with the people of God that he had been persecuting. And so Ananias is acting as Christ's deputy, duly appointed commissioner to reach Saul in this way. And actually, it's tactile. He touches him flesh to flesh. Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus, that appeared to you. Notice Jesus appeared to him, not just in vision, but appeared to you in the way as you came, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's on this basis of Christ appearing to Saul that he claims he was made an apostle. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Leave your marker there. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. 1 Corinthians nine verse one. Am I not an apostle? Paul will later write about thirty years, uh, twenty years later. Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? First Corinthians nine one. And move over to chapter fifteen verse eight. While you're there, fifteen verse eight. And last of all, he was seen by me also, as of one born out of due time. Saul calls himself later the least of the apostles. Because of what he had done to the church, he considered himself of no value in himself to Christ, thought less of himself than others. And he says, I persecuted the church of God. It's one of those 12 times we have that name of God's church. And this calling comes directly from Christ, not through another apostle. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Paul's, Saul's conversion and commissioning is very different than the way it was with the other apostles. And he tells us so in Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, but not of men, neither of man, but of Jesus Christ, And God the Father who raised him from the dead. Galatians 1 and verse 1. Calls himself an apostle, but not of men, but of Christ directly. And God the Father who raised Christ from the dead. Look at verse 11. But I certify, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. A personal revelation. He actually saw Christ. And this is what Ananias says here in Acts nine seventeen, where we go back now. Saul, brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared to you in the way as you came, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul will need that Holy Spirit for his ministry. And that will be evidenced by the way he preaches hereafter. And it won't be long before that voice will proclaim the truth. Verse 18. Immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, a crusty covering that peeled away. Something like scales. We even use that term yet today. Scales fall from your eyes. That's a biblical idea and concept. And he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. Now, there's no speaking in tongues here. It's baptism, receiving of the Holy Spirit. He's baptized. This is his conversion. He receives the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me read you a quotation from 18th century statesman George Lord Littleton. And this is what he said about this man Saul. Quote, The conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone duly considered was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. The fact that Christ, end of quote, the fact that Christ converted such a one, such a man who was such an enemy of the church is a stamp of approval and authentication for the Christian idea the Christian way even just the life of this man song and now verse 18 he received sight forthwith and he rose and he was baptized and when he had received food or meat he was strengthened and now look what happens next chapter 19 uh, chapter 9 verse 19 just next verse 19. Then was Paul certain days with the disciples that were at Damascus. Interesting place, there's Damascus, a hub of a vast commercial network with far-flung lines of caravan trading reaching into North Syria, Mesopotamia, Anatolia, Persia, Arabia. And if Christianity flourished there, it would quickly reach to all those centers. The news would spread. The city gates and a section of a town wall may still be seen there today. It's one of the oldest continuously occupied towns in the world, Damascus. Saul, certain day, spends time now with the disciples in the city. In verse 20, straightway, at once, following his baptism, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Instantly. Well, he had been commissioned. Christ told him to do this. And he wastes no time. He goes into the synagogues preaching that Christ is the Son of God. Son of God only here in the book of Acts. He is preaching this one who appeared to him as Messiah, as God who had come in the flesh and now had returned to the third heaven. And all that it heard in verse 21, were amazed. They were astounded. They said, what? Isn't this the guy that destroyed them, that called on this name in Jerusalem? And he came here with arrest warrants for that intent that he might bring them down to the chief priests? What's this? And now he's preaching his very name? So you can imagine their consternation. What is going on here? Did we get our wires crossed? Did we misunderstand what his mission was? And Saul, verse 22, increased the more in strength. He became ever more capable and powerful. And he confounded, he baffled the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. God's anointed, the Messiah. And the Jews are baffled. He was able to throw the Jewish colony at Damascus into complete confusion by the way he demonstrated that Jesus was the Christ. That's the way the New Jerusalem Bible renders that part of the verse. And what it says, with proving, he used cogent proofs, probably using prophetic scripture, to show that Jesus had fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of the Old Testament that no one else could have fulfilled. Cogent proof. Paul is an apologist. He is speaking of the evidence on behalf of who Jesus was. And so what happens next? 23. And after that, many days were fulfilled. The Jews took counsel to kill him. Here we go again. Now, this time, it's against one that was one of their allies at one point. After some time had passed, the Jews took counsel to kill him. Now, what's going on is that Paul will later write to us in his second Corinthian letter that the king of that time was Aretas IV. He was a Nabataean ruler, and the Nabataeans ruled Damascus in this era. And Aretas had instructed his governor to arrest Paul. And after that, many days were fulfilled. The Jews took counsel. They were instructed, find this guy and arrest him. It's interesting that the Talmudic Haggadah refers to a pupil of Gamaliel. Could it be this same Saul? Now at this fellowship student, it's intriguing. It's uncertain, but it does make us wonder. And so we read now verse 24. But their laying weight was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Saul now is under threat himself. After these many days, back in verse 23, about three years, he tells us, around 35 to 38 A.D. And during this time, you'll spend time in the desert, out in Arabia, some distance from Damascus. And he tells us about it in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 13. Let's go there. Galatians chapter one, starting at verse thirteen. Galatians one thirteen. He says to the brethren of the area of Galatia, You have heard of my conversation, my conduct in time past, in the Jewish religion, how that beyond measure. I persecuted the church of God and I wasted it. Interesting we use this, the King James in this case, we use that word wasting and that colloquial expression even today. And here's another of those 12 times when church of God occurs in our New Testament. But Paul says, as he is by the time he writes Galatians, using the name Paul now, as his ministry goes into the Gentile world, beyond measure, I persecuted the church and wasted He put every bit of energy into stamping out this movement. And I profited, verse 14, in the Jews' religion. Verse 14. I advanced. And he talks about his education, his dedication as a Pharisaic zealot. He profited in the Jewish religion, he says, above many of my equals, my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. If you want somebody that obeyed the law to the letter, this is your man. Saul did it perfectly. In that general sense. He was devout. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. And now these years later, when he writes Galatians, he thinks back and he now realizes that God had in mind to call him from the womb, just like God said he did for Jeremiah. Notable individuals that God had his hand on from the beginning, from the beginning of their life. He has called me, separated me for this mission from my mother's womb and called me to his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and then returned back to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I abode with him 15 days. And other of the apostles saw I none save, except James, the Lord's brother. So this is the period that we are speaking of here in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 23. After many days were fulfilled. The Jews took counsel to kill him. Because he had been out for training for those three years. Personal training with Christ. Comes back. People are looking for him. The king, Eretus, has given orders, arrest this man. And there, verse 24, Acts 9, laying wait was none of Saul. And they watched the gates day and night. Kill him. The hunted hunter has become the hunted. What a strange twist of affairs. And then the disciples took him by night and let him down by a wall in a basket, maybe an opening in the wall, and let him down to escape. Over the wall in a basket. Can you think of anybody else in the Bible who escaped by going over a wall like this? Two other stories. The spies at Jericho and David when Michael let him down in a basket. Let him down in a basket. In Damascus, there are still long stretches of the Roman wall from Paul's time. So now verse 26, about 38 AD, when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he tried to adjoin himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Now can you blame them? I mean, who was it that was rounding up their brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers? Aunts, uncles, grandparents, to haul them in for trial and punishment. And so Saul now arrives in the city. He tries to join the church (laughs) in our common parlance. And they all pull back from him. They had a reason to, they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. They didn't have his personal story to go on yet. Three years have gone by. You can imagine all the wild rumors that were floating about in the city. It looks like Saul's going to be pushed away. And along comes someone who says, I'll stand up for him. Someone whose name means the great encourager, Barnabas. Verse 27, Barnabas took him, maybe even by the hand, by the arm, and brought him to the apostles, stood up with him, and declared to them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of of Jesus. Isn't it a wonderful experience when you're in a tight fix, When somebody comes to your defense, comes to your rescue, stands up for you and defends you, and it kind of removes the questions, the doubts that have been raised about you. This is what this man Barnabas will do for Saul. And it's interesting that not many chapters away, these two men will pair up, be ordained in uh, the church church, And out they will go on their first evangelistic journey together. They become close friends. However, an incident will divide them for a few years, but they will rejoin. But at this point, Barnabas is standing up for him. And now verse 28. He was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. Now, Saul is moving about freely among the church there at Jerusalem, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. He's debating, he's acting as an apologist with these Grecian Jews, these Hellenists. It's interesting that Hellenist Christians like Stephen, Now, Saul was some of the most active in the work of the church at Jerusalem, just as the Hellenist Jews were some of the most active opponents of Christianity. These Jews of dispersion who had this Greek culture in common, but they sure take very different courses. And so what's happening here is that Saul seems to be picking up where Stephen left off. Do you think Stephen left a mark on this man's Saul? I think so. This is what Stephen was doing prior to his death. And now Saul picks up the baton to carry on. Verse 30, Which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Because now another threat against Paul, Saul, and they send him off to Caesarea Maritima, a beautiful city. It's where Pilate had his headquarters, a city on the coast of Palestine, south of Mount Carmel. And they send him back home. Said, Saul, go back home for a while. Let's let the let this turmoil simmer down. And It had been a while perhaps since Saul had seen his family. It may have been mutual. And he takes this journey 300 miles north of Jerusalem to his hometown of Tarsus, 10 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea, this well-known university city. And that's where he will stay until one Barnabas comes and gathers him and says, I need you. We need to get back. To the work that we've been assigned. In verse 31. And then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And they were built up, walking in the fear of the eternal. And the comfort of the Holy Spirit were multiplied. This verse summarizes a period of almost ten years in Christian history. About which Acts is otherwise silent. But what's going on in the Roman world is that Emperor Tiberius is replaced by Caligula who wanted to erect a statue of himself in the temple. So the Jews direct their opposition towards him and away from the church, as it seems. So the churches have room to grow, and they grow in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. They're built up, and they walk in the fear of the Lord. And in the consolation the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and they are multiplied. Why? Because now on their team is the Benjamite wolf, the wolf who has become a sheep. He's one of them. And they grow, and they multiply, and they prosper until the next round of persecution will follow. That's the story of the conversion of Saul. His name was always Saul through this period of his life, his Hebrew name. Later in his ministry, he'll start to use the name Paul more often. But I want to give you three lessons that we can draw from this experience as we think about people that we could never imagine would be in God's church. Number one. It's a lesson to us to never write people off. In our beauty brains, we don't know the future. We don't know God's plans. And we need to be careful not to assume that certain people could never make such a transformation as Saul did. The reason being, if God wants them, he will work a miracle in that life like he did with Saul. It teaches us again that Christ is the head of his church. If he wants someone, he will have them. And so we don't want to write people off or cut, count people out. Let's leave that to Christ Himself. He knows what he's doing. And number two, that's one reason Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for them. Isn't that what Stephen did? You see, when Stephen was dying, he prayed that very kind of a prayer. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Was that prayer answered? Who's standing now on behalf of the gospel? The man who was in charge of Stephen's execution. Look at Matthew 5 and verse 43. Matthew 5, 43. Isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray? Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it's been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now the first part came from the Hebrew Bible. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy seems to have been something that the rabbis were teaching. But Jesus says, you've heard that. But verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. To do that, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. The carnal mind cannot handle that kind of a forgiving spirit. It's a miraculous action. Verse 45, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the publicans, tax collectors, do the same thing? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than anybody else? Tax collectors do that. But this verse that we so often quote, 48 is in this context 48 be you therefore perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect the context is loving your enemies and praying for them those who despitefully use us that's lesson two this is why Jesus tells us to love our enemies and that's exactly what Stephen did just before he died and verse 3. I should say, number three, third lesson, every conversion is a miracle. Even those of us who are not chief persecutors like Saul, we resisted God one way or another until we finally surrendered. That was a miracle. The fact that you're here now is a miracle. Every conversion is a miracle. In my ministry, I have seen this happen. Let me tell you a story. In my first pastorate, Estevan, Saskatchewan, small church, 25 people scattered over 500 miles. Saskatchewan, North Dakota, Montana. We had a gentleman, faithfully came up for services, crossed the border every week. And he would warn me about his wife. We would ask about going to visit him. And he told me that another minister Years ago, he stopped by to see him, and his wife stormed out of the house and said, You get out of here. I don't want any hoodlums around here. <laughs> and chased him off. This man faithfully attended for seven years with this opposition at home daily. And then one day he came to services when I was pastor and said, I don't know what's happening, but my wife... Wants to begin studying. She's reading my literature. She's asking me questions. And do you know that shortly thereafter I had the honor of baptizing her? This enemy of the church had been called of God and made a transformation. It happens today as it happened with Saul in the first century. So these are lessons that we can draw from. Never count people out. Pray for enemies. Every conversion is a miracle. And if we do that, we'll realize that perhaps someone you know, God will change from a wolf to a sheep.